Uh, good evening. Um, my name's David Spurgel. I'm a professor in the Department of Astrophysics and a member of the Committee on Public Lectures. And I'd like to welcome you to the first of two uh, Lewis Clark Benuxum lectures. This is uh, one of our prestigious lecture series, so you get to hear two introductions. You'll get to hear, it's just the introduction. You'll get to hear two introductions. <laughs> so first you get to hear me introduce the lecture series, and then Dima will introduce the speaker. So this uh, lecture series was founded in 1912 with a bequest of $25,000 from the will of Lewis Clark Benuxum of the class of 1879. By direction of the executors, at least half the income of the foundation is used for a series of public lectures before the university annually on subjects of scientific interest. Previous lectures have included Edwin Hubble on the exploration of space from 1931 to 32, Thomas Mann on Goethe Faust in 1938-39, James Conant on the mobilization of American scientists for war, Ralph Ellison on the novel in America, and Carl Sagan on extraterrestrial life. Um, more recent lecturers have included uh, Eric Lander, Lord Robert May, and uh, uh, today's lecturer, Frank Wolchak. So um, let me now uh, introduce Dima Abanin, a fellow in the Princeton Center for Theoretical Science, who will introduce Frank. Well, thanks. thanks, David. Uh, so we are extremely lucky to, to have uh, Frank Wilczek today as our speaker. As our speaker. Um, so his, his work on uh, quantum chromodynamics really defined the way we understand elementary particles today. And um, what is truly, truly remarkable is that he's done this work when he was uh, just a graduate student here at Princeton. And um, this work was recognized by a long list of awards, uh, including Nobel Prize in 2003. Uh, what is even more remarkable is that uh, later on in his career, um, Frank did uh, uh, similarly important contributions in a very broad, broad range of topics. Uh, and uh, uh, listing even a few of them would take a long time. So let me just mention one uh, very important work on that, that Frank did uh, on condensed matter physics. Uh, he realized that, uh, in, that in two dimensions, the uh, particles don't have to be fermions or bosons, but they can be somewhere in between. Uh, he, he calls such particles anions and uh, uh, Later on, they were actually observed in uh, real condensed matter systems. So uh, without further delay, please, please, Frank. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dima. And uh, thank you for coming on this beautiful night to uh, hear a scientific lecture. It's lovely to be back in Princeton where I've spent uh, more than half my adult life. Uh, memories all over, friends in the audience, 
uh, let's get down to business. So uh, when scientists talk to the public very frequently, uh, they're talking about the latest developments at the frontiers of science or else talking about some uh, new technology or some scientific issue that's relevant to public policy. Uh, those are all very important things, and I'm going to do some of that in these two lectures. But I wanted to do something different that I think is much more unusual, but also extremely important. I think it's, and this was the great opportunity to do it, I felt. Uh, it's, I think it's important to think of science as part of our culture, as establishing some very fundamental uh, attitudes towards the world and facts about the world that everyone should know and not only know abstractly but internalize and think about deeply. Now, uh, if that's going to be the case, we have to focus on a relatively small number of fundamental facts. And so I, uh, I tried to make it a list of 10. There's precedent for 10 things being uh, a good number to try to remember. <clears throat> so uh, I'll quickly just mention the various propositions that I'm going to be exposing, expanding upon in these two lectures. We perceive only a small, tiny portion of reality. The physical world is comprehensible. The basic laws are mathematical. The basic laws are local. And the basic laws predict probabilities. I hope to cover these things tonight. And then next time, the universe is a very big and a very old place. The state of the world, not only the laws, but why it looks the way it does, is broadly comprehensible. Vast opportunities that uh, science presents are presently unexploited. And finally, there's still plenty we don't understand, which I will uh, illustrate. <laughs> so uh, let's begin with this perhaps the deepest, men the deepest lesson of science of all for uh, general culture. We perceive only a tiny portion of reality. There's much more to the world than meets the eye. Or uh, saying it in a positive way, learning about the scientific uh, world picture and its richness is a mind, mind and experience expanding endeavor. <clears throat> Our primary portal to the, to the outside world is vision. But if you think about it, it's a very limited portal. We, I mean, later I'll be talking about how big the universe is, but never mind how big the universe is. Uh, even compared to a human body or, or an auditorium, the iris and the pupil that uh, absorb light in any human being, are very, very tiny geometrical objects. They only capture a very small 
fraction of the light that's out there. Not only that, but light is a very small part of the uh, stuff that's out there, uh, even in, uh, of a similar kind, so-called electromagnetic radiation. Uh, we know that you can have electromagnetic disturbances, I'll describe what, about, a little more about that later, uh, of all different sizes or, or wavelengths. Visible light corresponds to this little sliver here. Uh, other parts are radio, infrared, ultraviolet, x-rays, gamma rays, uh, each of which exists and uh, can be sensed and is out there in space. You can hang out an antenna to observe some of these things or a Geiger counter or whatever, uh, but our eyes don't see it. We're not aware of it. These limits, the fact that we see only, well, apparently I can't go backwards, I'm sorry. Uh, these limit, oh, I know how to go backwards, yeah. <laughs> these limits, the fact that our eyes are sensitive only to wavelengths that are uh, big compared to uh, small distances, atomic distances, means, of course, that we don't see the deep structure of the world. We don't see what's inside uh, the smallest parts of uh, physical reality. We don't see what we now know in physics are where the fundamental interactions occur. We know, for instance, that the basic, well, let me, let me not say what we know, let me just make a picture. If our eyes were not designed or <coughs> evolved uh, to <laughs> see things, resolved distances as small as 10 to the minus 14 centimeters or as fast moving as 10 to the minus 24 seconds, but uh, using our noodles and calculating uh, what happens inside theories that we can check in other ways, we can uh, numerically figure out what we would see if our eyes were capable of seeing those uh, small times and small distances. So uh, I've made, or actually Derek Lineweber of the University of Adelaide made a picture based on that of what space and time would look like everywhere and every when if your eyes could resolve those kinds of distances and time. And so here it comes, the deep structure of reality. We can turn down the lights a little. It looks like a sort of lava lamp. What you're seeing here are fluctuations in the energy inside the so-called gluon fields that hold our quarks and ultimately our 
uh, atomic nuclei together that are responsible for almost the energy in these fluctuations and the disturbances are responsible for holding our nuclei together, uh, for giving us our weight, uh, and we're blissfully unaware of it. If our eyes were better and we could see that this was the underlying structure of the world, uh, I dare say philosophy would look quite different. <laughs> the idea of stable objects and uh, that the world had a kind of permanence would be something you'd have to earn, or that would be very unintuitive. Uh, a way of emphasizing how limited our perception is, is simply to note that we have many, many ways of enhancing it. We can enhance our vision through telescopes, microscopes, radio receivers with light in the broad sense, and so forth. But most of all, uh, by using our minds. You'll notice whenever you see pictures in astronomy of distant galaxies or whenever you see pictures of what things look like on very small scales, of course, they're complete lies. You can't see those things. But using our minds, we can translate the meaning of structures on those distances into visual things that are more suited to our brains. The next two senses, according to Aristotle, are hearing and touch. Uh, hearing, again, is very geometrically limited. It's based on the air pressure on a tiny little thing in your ear that impinges. Uh, touch is complicated. It's not one sense, but it what it is, it's a reading of the pressure and temperature field at the surface of your body and a little bit about flow patterns from a modern point of view. And these are subject to extreme geometric limits. They don't extend very much beyond the surface of our skin. Uh, they don't uh, cover the spectrum of the, the very high frequencies. People who get older know this, that they can't hear anymore the piccolos, but, uh, and dog whistles, dogs can hear things that we don't, and so forth. Uh, come on. Okay, I'm going to... Aristotle's other senses are smell and taste. We now know that these are very complex things. They're not one sense. They're not one thing that's being sampled. But again, they are very limited in uh, spatial range. They sample only a very tiny part of the universe. We're still learning things about these senses. Uh, and in some sense, they're very rich senses. Uh, whereas the eye samples three different uh, color patterns. It has three different kinds of proteins that respond to light of different frequency. And taste involves 29 different identifiable uh, receptors. Uh, the nose 
has 900 and counting, <laughs> including an, uh, a very recent discovery that I thought was so entertaining that I had to share it, is that uh, there are taste receptors inside our lungs that uh, taste bitter. They're identical to the taste receptors on tongues. Uh, they are sensitive to bitter and warn you if you're uh, breathing noxious gases. What these chemical senses sense, what they all basically are, is they sense the presence of molecules with different shapes that fit into the different kinds of receptors. So uh, they're little chemistry laboratories that uh, look for molecules of certain sizes and shapes and tell us if those things are impinging on our nasal membranes or on our tongues or in our lungs a little bit. It's remarkable that, uh, and I think a very strong argument uh, for the theory of evolution, that uh, the Molecules that sample light, the rhodopsin molecules, are in the same family, very closely related to uh, these molecules that uh, sense smells or tastes. And it's very poetic, I think, that in this very literal sense, vision tastes light. We can enhance, and again, the limitation of this sense is obvious from the fact that we can enhance it vastly. There are many, many things you can do in a chemistry laboratory that you can't do in your no with your nose or your tongue. Also, there are animals that have sharper senses than we do, yeah, especially, for, especially for taste and smell. Aristotle left out some senses. Uh, we can sense motion in space, accelerations. These are called balance and kinesthesia. These are telling us about our relationship to the ether, how fast we're moving relative to uh, accelerating relative to background space and time. We can also sense the passage of time, which is another property that's uh, in the ether. Uh, we have internal clocks, the circadian rhythms. We can also, I think a quite remarkable thing, keep the beat, set a time, and keep the beat uh, to a certain extent, some of us better than others, uh, in music. <coughs> Altogether, summarizing this, I think what's clear is that our senses are very selective, very limited, in all cases, they're useful, they help us get around, uh, but there's much more that we don't sense. In particular, we don't sense events that are remote in space and or time, and we don't sense the deep structure of the material world. And we have to use our mind for that, and that's what we'll be doing in the rest of these discussions. My second big theme is that the physical world is my second fundamental, 
is that the physical world is comprehensible. Uh, this involves both ambition and strategy. Uh, people talk very loosely about scientific revolutions. Every few weeks there's a scientific revolution of some kind or other in the press. But I think really there's only one basic scientific revolution. that can be uh, carried, however, from one field to another. And it is, involves moving from what comes naturally to humans in explaining how the world works, metaphors, stories, and rules of thumb, to sharp, testable propositions. Uh, I love the story of Galileo and the philosophers. Uh, Galileo was uh, on a faculty at Pisa where he was not regarded as one of the star professors. There were professors there who could explain the nature of the world, explain why uh, the world was designed the way it was, that uh, the essences uh, were the way they were. And they were very grand explanations of the biggest and best things in the universe. Whereas Galileo, what was he doing? Well, he was rolling balls down inclined planes and seeing how fast they moved and trying to get uh, accurate account of this seemingly minuscule phenomenon. But we know that because Galileo held himself to a high standard of what it meant to understand something. Uh, that was knowledge, however humble, that you could build on. And that's, of course, led to great things, whereas vague thinking about big questions uh, generally doesn't lead to progress. Uh, the, the philosopher Karl Popper demanded that propositions in science be falsifiable, that you could uh, tell that they were sharp propositions by the fact that you could uh, devise experiments that might prove them false. I think that's too narrow, and I'll uh, hope to, I'll come to this in impressive examples later. I think we also have to allow truthifiable statements statements that uh, are so beautiful, so compelling, that we want them to be true. And instead of looking for ways to prove them false, we look for ways that they might be right. And, and if they don't seem to be right, we keep looking and, and changing the idea slightly. Uh, in this theme of scientific revolution, I think there were three great eras. The first, the ancient Greeks, who made sharp assertions about measuring and geometry. Then, in the 17th century, the classic scientific revolution, uh, there were for, the, the, the question was formulating exact laws of motion for the behavior of bodies. And the most recent scientific revolution, I think 
definitely worthy of being uh, put beside these occurred during the 20th century when we moved from tracking how matter, both physical and biological, behaves to laying out what matter is. That is, uh, we want a very detailed picture not only of how things move, but of why things uh, are the way they are, why there are, say, chemical elements and not why are there are the chemical elements there are and why they have the properties they do, uh, not only uh, how, given the chemical elements, they will behave. The method that's led to this scientific revolution of the 20th century, both for biology and uh, physics, is the method of reductionism, which bothers some people because it says you're reducing things somehow. But uh, I prefer the term analysis and synthesis. What it means is you try to uh, understand things by understanding their component parts very accurately. It didn't have to be that way, but we do find that the smallest objects obey simpler laws than bigger objects, and then we build up our description of bigger objects from those. Uh, sometimes it's useful to stop the reductionism at a point where uh, we don't inquire further into uh, appropriate black boxes. This is called emergence. But emergence really is just multi-tiered reductionism. It's, re uh, it's reductionism that stops at a certain point and builds up. You can stop wherever you want to. But all these tiers should be consistent, and one should lead into another. And here's uh, Newton's classic formulation of what reductionism is. Now, it didn't have to work that way. And a lot of people don't like reductionism, as I said. They, I think it's more because of the word than because of the thing. But the fact that it does work, and it didn't have to, is very profound. It relies on certain facts about the physical world. First of all, its success what the degree of its success relies very importantly on the fact that the laws are uniform in space and time. We find the same physical laws work here as work in distant galaxies. We can see that uh, the spectra of stars in distant galaxies is the same as ones here, and it's the same as emitted by uh, elements here on, in terrestrial laboratories. Uh, the laws of motion appear to be the same and so forth. The laws are local. I'll say more about that. That's also vital so that you can analyze little bits at a time without having to worry about solving the whole world all at once. And uh, the most profound is what I call the quantum sensor. 
that says that there really is a black box, that uh, if you don't, don't go all the way down to the bottom, sometimes you're protected, and nevertheless, you can get precise re uh, precisely correct answers. I'll elaborate on this a little later. In any case, it ain't necessarily so. All these are contingent facts about the world. Uh, one can easily imagine worlds, say, like uh, the worlds of uh, Super Mario Brothers or other computer games, where uh, the laws change depending on where you are. Each level has its own rules, very different physically. Also, uh, distant objects and things you've done long before can affect what happens uh, now. So certainly, uh, you can imagine worlds that are different. You can imagine, and that comes naturally to people. It was a very big struggle to think that the, the uh, space is uniform and the laws don't change with time. That's not, definitely not what you find in creation myths and the Bible and so forth. So it didn't have to work. The fact that it does work is extraordinarily profound. Now, I've claimed that the world is comprehensible. What does that mean? I've also said that you should make sharp statements. So there seems to be a certain amount of tension between those two claims. But I don't think there really is, and again, the fact that they're, well, I'll venture an answer. <laughs> Five languages, at least, are uh, very, of very different character, are important in describing the world, and are widely used. Uh, first of all, there's the world of experience, which we, uh, which is our brain somehow translating sensory impressions and uh, interpreting them to creating a world that we call everyday reality. Presumably, uh, this is reflecting at a deeper level some neural code, but uh, it's the world as experienced. I don't think I have to explain what that means. Uh, ordinary language is the way we can convey our ideas about the world of experience to each other. Ordinary mathematics is the language of science that we use to uh, describe uh, the world of, uh, that we uh, ex jointly experience and its regularities. And ultimately, when we talk to computers and try to tell them about all this stuff, we have to translate everything into a kind of extraordinary mathematics, a language of just ones and zeros and rules for manipulating them. Uh, we can translate among these languages, at least we can talk about many of the same things in those different languages.
And in particular, we can ask, uh, what, it, what, it what, it, what do we really have to tell somebody, a computer, that speaks only in the language of zeros and ones in order to describe our ideas and theories about the physical world? And then, in that framework, there's a very clear criterion for what we mean by successful comprehension. That is, we want a short description of what the world is. We want to be able to translate uh, it into a computer program that's not too long. If the computer program is long, that means we're feeding a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of facts into the uh, world. We're not deducing them. We're not comprehending them. We're not getting a uh, more compact description than is presented on the surface. This is very much related to uh, Ernst Mach's idea of economy of science or the minimum description length of uh, computer science, and I think captures the essence of what it means to comprehend something. But Einstein said it simp in, in, uh, uh, more colloquially that theories should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. So we need, of course, uh, not only minimalism, but correctness. <clears throat> the limits to this, should, to this uh, comprehension should also be acknowledged. Uh, Straight calculation from fundamental laws about the redu most reduced description of the world in terms of fundamentals to anything uh, complicated is much too hard. When, theories, when people talk about a theory of everything, they don't mean it. It wouldn't be a theory of everything. At the most, and even this is not really in sight. Uh, it would be a theory of what the basic uh, laws are of the most reduced uh, step, the lowest tier in reductionism. But since you can't, in practice, solve the equations or deduce in a, in a meaningful way, the properties of large objects based on the uh, properties of the many, 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 many small objects that uh, make them up, uh, you don't really get a theory of everything. You get a theory of the lowest tier in the reductionist ladder. In science and technology, equally important as analysis is synthesis and their pattern recognition data and creativity rule. And finally, uh, something I'll elaborate more on, probability enters in deeply into our description of the world for both practical and fundamental reasons. So that's another limitation that uh, science has discovered itself on how comprehensible the world is. <coughs> Third fundamental point that I wanted to uh, talk about is that the basic laws are mathematical. 
A beautiful way of putting this, I think, is that by improving our equations, we expand our world. That is, that the mapping between uh, the mathematical language and the language of uh, physical reality, uh, because we can do things in the mathematical language uh, that uh, we can't do easily in physical reality, expand our control and understanding of the other world. This will be clearer, I think, if I just give some case studies, which are very compelling. They also have resonance with uh, ongoing frontier investigations in science. Uh, for instance, we're very much interested in unification of forces, and I'll talk about that uh, quite a bit next time. But it's not the first episode of unification, and the existence of previous episodes of the success of this kind of way of thinking uh, are very are inspiring and relevant. So, in the 19th century, uh, people studied phenomena of electricity and magnetism. At first, they seemed to be different things. But then uh, Oersted made a very famous discovery that an electric current produces magnetic fields, so that there was start to be a relation between these two things. And then Faraday made another dramatic discovery that uh, he started to talk about uh, electricity and magnetism as being due to space-filling fields, ethers, and uh, demonstrated that in the presence of changes in uh, magnetic fields, you would produce electric fields. In any case, Maxwell, in 1861, put together all the laws of electricity and magnetism that Faraday and Ersted and other people had discovered and tried to reduce them to a coherent mathematical system. And when he did, he found that there was a contradiction. The equations were inconsistent. Well, if we listen to uh, Karl Popper and ask for falsifiable theories, uh, we could celebrate because it's not only falsifiable, but actually false, the existing theory of electricity and magnetism. However, uh, what Maxwell wanted to do was make a true theory, a truthifiable theory, so he looked for ways of incorporating the known laws, changing things a little bit, and making them true. And so he added a unobserved, but conceivable effect that would fix these mathematical equations, would fix the inconsistency. What he needed to fix the inconsistency was a sort of complement or dual to uh, Faraday's effect. Faraday showed that changing magnetic fields produce electric fields experimentally. Maxwell, just based on analyzing equations and saying, trying to imagine a world that was consistent and more beautiful, said, I can fix it if I have a new effect 
that changing electric fields produce magnetic fields. And uh, this gave rise to a consistent set of equations called the Maxwell's equations. Well, I won't explain what all these are, but uh, you can do some hand-waving. So if we have, here's a magnetic field that's changing. It produces an electric field that's changing, according to Faraday. And then Maxwell says the electric field that's changing produces a magnetic field that's changing. And then Faraday, Maxwell, Faraday, Maxwell, Faraday, Maxwell. <laughs> you can have a self-reinforcing, self-propagating disturbance that involves only fields, no matter, just these imaginary or imaginative electric and magnetic fields. Uh, so that's a new component of reality that leaps out of the equations, leaps out of the mathematical analysis. Maxwell calculated how fast these disturbances would move from his equations, and he discovered that they propagate at the speed of light. So being a very bold and clever fellow, he scratched his beard, I guess, <laughs> and said, by golly, that is light. And we can scarcely avoid the inference that light consists in the transverse undulations of the same medium, which is the cause of electric and magnetic phenomena. And that, of course, to this day, is our deep understanding of light as a disturbance in electric and magnetic fields. Taking us back to this picture I showed earlier. But of course, there was much more. Light was known, of course, at that time, but it, wasn't, it was only then discovered by Maxwell to be a disturbance in electric and magnetic fields, but his equations predicted the existence of other kinds of disturbances, disturbances with more gradual changes, longer wavelengths, or more abrupt than light with shorter wavelengths. And today, we know these things as these different uh, useful elements of technology and elements of reality, radio waves, infrared waves, and so forth that are ubiquitous. The first to be discovered was discovered by this man, Heinrich Hertz, the father of radio, more than 20 years after Maxwell discovered his equations. Took quite a long time. Well, things were slower those days. But in any case, uh, it was by no means a trivial thing to uh, to, to get technology caught up with the mathematical vision and beauty that Maxwell had been led to. And Hertz, reflecting on this, said something that I think is uh, very much worth recording. It's very pretty and profound. One cannot escape the feeling that these mathematical formulae have an independent existence and an intelligence of their own, that they are wiser than we are, wiser even than their discoverers, that we get more out of them than was originally put into them. And that, to me, is uh, a statement that uh, the 
laws are mathematical. <coughs> the basic laws are mathematical. That's not the only such episode. Another was the first incarnation of dark matter. Nowadays we're wrestling with a dark matter problem that I'll uh, allude to later. Uh, but it's not the first. In the 19th century, after a series of magnificent triumphs for Newton's theory of gravity and explaining the motion of planets, the comets, the, uh, the tides, uh, there was something was wrong. The planet Uranus wasn't moving quite the way it was supposed to. Such was the uh, faith the justified faith after so much success in uh, Newton's equations that uh, people came up with the hypothesis to save it based on faith in the mathematics that uh, there was a new planet, a new kind of dark matter that was responsible. It wasn't a flaw in the mathematical laws. We don't take theories to be falsified. We try to make them true for gosh sakes. And these guys uh, postulated that there was a new planet. And they said where it would have to be and how heavy in order that it would do the job of uh, fixing or making the, motion, the observed motion of Uranus uh, consistent with, what was with uh, the equations. And by golly, that planet, as soon as the observers uh, pointed their telescopes in that direction, they noticed a star that moved, and that's what we now call Neptune. Another episode, it's more re recent, uh, in the birth of quantum mechanics, uh, Schrodinger made an equation for the hydrogen atom for how electrons respond to uh, the electric field of a nucleus, a proton, and a hydrogen atom, that was extremely successful in accounting for the properties of hydrogen, its spectrum in particular. But his equation was pragmatic. It didn't obey the theory of special relativity. So it wasn't as beautiful as it should be. It wasn't consistent with the uh, other ideas of physics. So uh, Dirac, despite the pragmatic success of Schrodinger's equation, was looking for a better equation that would be consistent with the theory of relativity. He proposed a very beautiful equation that had really remarkable, it's hard to do justice to this uh, in words, but really remark, take my word for it, very remarkable, uh, extremely attractive, gorgeous mathematical properties, this, the, the Dirac equation. But to uh, make Schrodinger's equation, this modification of it, consistent with relativity, he had to add terms similar to what Maxwell did. He had to make bigger equations that had extra stuff. These equations had extra solutions 
that uh, were not the ones that he wanted. We're not, he had, they had some solutions that looked like uh, Schrodinger's old solutions, approximately, and so uh, we produced the success of the earlier atom. But there were extra solutions that uh, had very disturbing properties, had negative energy, and seemed to represent instabilities. And nobody knew what to do with these extra solutions at first. Uh, nevertheless, Dirac published his paper with some nonsensical mumbling about the extra solutions. After several years of struggle, where you had the equations in front of you, but didn't know what they meant and had to interpret them, uh, these extra solutions were interpreted as a new form of matter, namely antimatter, and antimatter was promptly then discovered in cosmic rays, the antiparticle of the electron. This is a most, I think, impressive uh, demonstration of the power of mathematics and conceptual thinking to decode the meaning of uh, the natural world. This mapping between mathematics and physical reality allows one, since equations are easier to manipulate than physical objects, usually, uh, and also can be uh, more, you can play with them and find surprises, uh, and uh, when you, as, as Hertz said, the equations can be wiser than you are, you write down equations and then are surprised by the properties of their solutions. Uh, this has led to the possibility, by knowing the mathematical laws, uh, of designing things that have surprising properties, like transistors, lasers, magnetic resonance imaging. All these things were things that were deduced, not stumbled on uh, by experiment, but uh, designed by playing with the equations. So I hope that convinces you of my third assertion that the basic laws are mathematical. The fourth found fundamental I wanted to uh, talk about is that the basic laws are local. This is both a tremendous simplification and a deep guiding principle. What does it mean? Well, it means that we can ignore the universe. We can do, with very good accuracy, uh, experiments in a laboratory that we don't have to worry about the phase of the moon, we don't have to worry about what's going on so much in the next guy's laboratory. If we take appropriate precautions, which uh, are generally not too severe, uh, we get the same result regardless of what the rest of the world is doing. It's only our local neighborhood that's really relevant. <coughs> or another way of putting it is astrology not, or another way of putting it, which I really love, is uh, Sherlock Holmes, 
a very profound thinker, uh, shocked Dr. Watson in one of their earliest encounters in a study of Scarlet uh, by his ignorance of the Copernican theory. And here's what he said uh, uh, when, when Watson expressed his shock. He said, what the deuce is it to me, he interrupted impatiently. You say that we go around the sun. If we went around the moon, it would not make a penny worth of difference to me or my work. That's because of locality. <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you, don't <laughs> you can do very minute uh, examination of the physical evidence of crimes without having to worry about what the moon is doing. <clears throat> this doesn't ha it didn't have to be the case, and as I, as I mentioned before, it's not the case in computer games. If, like in the Matrix, we were inside a computer, actually, we were artificial intelligences somehow produced uh, inside a computer, or if we eventually design intelligences ourselves inside computers that don't know they're inside computers, but just, uh, just think their world is what it, it, it's what it is, we designed it, it doesn't have to be local. But the world we experience seems to be, to very great accuracy, the reason is that the fundamental forces, all of them, uh, fall off with distance, that uh, we can have radiation, but radiation spreads in all directions and weakens uh, in any particular angular segment as you go further away. And, of course, there's a cosmic speed limit, the speed of light. Nothing moves faster than that, so really distant objects uh, don't have any influence. Even the whole universe uh, can't, with all its radiation, can't light up the night sky. The, this is uh, the, the question why it doesn't is known as Olber's paradox, but in view of the time, I won't, uh, I won't enter into details on that unless someone has a question. But it comes about uh, by a combination of the cosmic speed limit, the finite lifetime of the universe, and the spread and dilution of radiation. So uh, these are empirical facts that lead us to think that locality is correct, hint around that it's a correct idea, at least approximately, but in modern physics, it's, it's gone to a whole different level. In modern physics, not only locality is, is not locality an approximate fact that we find out when we investigate fundamental laws, it's the way we guess what the fundamental laws are. In formulating the so-called standard model of particle physics, which is at present the lowest established rung of the reductionist ladder, uh, the absolutely fundamental guiding principle is that all particles is radical locality. All particles are ideal points, structureless points, that interact when and only when and where their world lines touch. Now, there's a little bit of a fudge. 
because the actual locations of these point particles, they're point quantum mechanical particles, so their actual location is described by a probability distribution. So the point particle can be at different places. In that sense, it's like a cloud, but it's really a cloud of point, point light particles. And this is captured precisely and mathematically and pictorially and visually and beautifully in Feynman diagrams where the fundamental interactions are always when the different particles find themselves at the same place in space and time. Again, because I don't want to abuse your patience, uh, let me just say, uh, in, in some popular literature and even movies, uh, quantum entanglement is said to uh, lead to non-local effects. It ain't so. Also, the confinement of quarks leads to forces that grow with distance. You might think that's a challenge to locality. It's not. And if you're worried about these things, I'll be happy to talk to, with you about them later. Uh, the final point I wanted to talk about tonight, though, is that the basic laws predict probabilities. There are both sources and sinks of indeterminism. There are sources of probability of the, the, the necessity to use probability. And remarkably, however, uh, there's also a sink where probabilities get hidden and become certainties. So uh, in the ideal of comprehension, we should aim at economy, accuracy, but also completeness. And so we should aspire to equations that give us a definitive and therefore a complete description of the physical world. Why then do we often stop at probabilities? In practice, scientists use probabilities a lot, even in the most fundamental physics. I think that all appearances of probabilities can be traced to three fundamental sources, incomplete information, chaos and quantum indeterminacy. So let me say a few words about each of those. Incomplete information is in some ways the simplest and most straightforward. Uh, if you want to discuss the properties of a macroscopic body that may contain billions and billions and billions and billions, billions times billions of atoms, uh, it's not practical, even remotely, to uh, keep track of what every last single atom is doing and use our reductionist equations to figure out what's going to happen next. You have to uh, look for things that don't rely on that, and that will bring in probabilities. Or when you talk about people who may have different properties that you can't completely know, you have to sort of take average or expect expectations of uh, what they might do. 
Quantum theory aggravates this situation because in quantum mechanics, in quantum theory, uh, as I mentioned, the particles are no, are, have un fundamental uncertainty in position, which means that to describe their behavior, you have to describe uh, where they might be as opposed to where they are. And so this is, this, there are many more possibilities for where they might be uh, that it's, it's a, an even bigger mess. <clears throat> a second source is chaos, or this uh, uh, amplifies the effect of not knowing or not being able to keep track of, of every little last thing. Uh, this sets in, however, even for relatively simple systems, as was discovered uh, in the last few decades. So let me show you a, nice, a little video. You can turn down the lights slightly. This is a pendulum that really looks pretty funny. And uh, it's a pendulum that also is not subject just to gravity, but also uh, you might see a little magnet on the bottom. There's also uh, a simple magnetic field present. And, in the, and uh, the combination of just those two things, ordinary gravitational force plus simple magnetic forces, leads to these very, very complex paths. And you may notice that the particle or the ball gets very close to a, a position at, at different times and, then, and does radically different things. This is what's known as chaos. Very tiny differences in uh, where you start make, after a while, tremendous differences in uh, where you end up. This is why it's so hard to predict the weather, for instance. Now, those are sources of uncertainty. In quantum mechanics, uh, it's much worse, in a sense. It's not just a practical matter that we don't know enough or that we can't solve the equations accurately enough, though we don't. Uh, it's that the f primary description of the world involves not uh, description of reality but some, directly, but something called a wave function. And a wave function generally describes many possible alternative realities that one might observe if one actually observes. But if you don't observe, the wave function uh, contains everything you might observe and doesn't describe a definite world. If someone or some thing observes, they find just one reality realized. Reality realized, I like that. And the wave function predicts the relative probabilities of those different realities. The famous classic uh, instantiation of this is Schrodinger's cat. So here's a cute little kitty together with uh, a radioactive substance, a Geiger counter, and uh, here's a little vial of poison. And depending on 
whether one of these radioactive nuclei decays and breaks open the bottle, the, bottle, uh, the cat will be alive or dead. Now, the laws of radioactivity are deeply quantum mechanical. We can't predict deterministically when a nucleus is going to decay. According to quantum theory, which has many testable successful consequences, uh, it's it's the decays of the nucleus at different time are all present in the wave function. Uh, they just occur with different probabilities. And so if you let things go for a while, uh, but don't look, so you don't observe, there's a wave function which contains both an alive cat and a dead cat with substantial probability. And Schrodinger's paradox was, okay, uh, what does the cat think of this? <laughs> Didn't have to be a cat, of course. It could have been Schrodinger. It could have been, uh, what would be the state of consciousness? What would be something in experience that corresponds to this hovering between uh, life and death? And of course, uh, there isn't any. And this is why Schrodinger, even though he made a was one of the uh, inventors of quantum mechanics, uh, never really accepted it. Uh, however, the answer to Schrodinger's cat is really very simple, is that, okay, you put this guy in a box, uh, you first observe the cat when you open the box, but the air molecules around, and uh, they have to be air molecules to keep the cat alive in the first place, right? Uh, the air molecules around and the environment here of the cat uh, observes anyway, can definitely tell as soon as the cat keels over uh, that it has keeled over. And so an observation is made, not by anybody, but by something, and uh, these two uh, different possibilities only one is realized. Uh, well, to be to make that precise, uh, we would have to talk about wave functions and the, the, the orthogonality and, and their degree of overlap. Basically, an observation is uh, something that disturbs the observing system enough so that it's different possible uh, outcomes, depending on whether the cat is alive or dead, uh, have negligible overlap in the wave functions. Okay. We, well, I could, I could, yeah. It's a subtle, no, a subtle notion that's still under debate somewhat, but the basic idea is you observe it if it makes a difference, if, if, if it makes a difference to your own life, even if, if you're an atom, uh, if it makes a, signif a significant difference to your own life, uh, you've observed it. So if an atom gets brushed aside as the cat falls down, it has observed the death of the cat. Okay. Okay. So in this world of uncertainty and indeterminacy, uh, to talk sensibly and, and recover as much as we can uh, 
of a definite description of the world, uh, we need to find sure things. And much of the art of science is finding sure things from uh, plucking sure things from uh, these uncertain things and, and uh, uh, on, only approximately known things. In doing that, the important ingredients are that fundamentally there are some conserved quantities, energy, momentum, uh, angular momentum, that uh, and approximately conserved quantities like the relative abundance of different elements and chemical reactions that uh, because they persist in time are things that you can uh, track and are not subject to uh, the vagaries of chaos. If you take averages over many, many things, the law of large numbers comes in and uh, from as everyone who's uh, thought about life insurance realizes, although the uh, lifetime of any one individual uh, is uncertain, if you take averages, uh, you can make money selling insurance. <laughs> but the one that's least intuitive, and I think uh, the most basic, is the uh, existence of energy-minimizing structures. When you go down to, uh, when, you, when there's only a small amount of energy available, the quantum sensor starts to work. Let me explain this benevolent sensor. It's funny if you think about it. Uh, quantum mechanics is, the quantum in quantum mechanics is discreteness. Okay, you're saying that, and yet the primary ingredient of quantum mechanics is wave functions, which are spread in space, and uh, particles that are uncertain in position. What's discrete about that? Well, uh, in the very earliest days of quantum mechanics, Bohr's outrageous atom uh, was the origin of the quantum, the discontinuity, but it wasn't deduced. This was just, uh, I must say, in one of the most audacious scientific papers ever, just said to be so. Uh, Bohr wanted to make a model of the hydrogen atom. So there's a proton, a nucleus, and an electron that goes around it. According to the laws of electrodynamics, Maxwell's and uh, Maxwell's achievement, those very uh, profound, beautiful, and accurate equations, uh, when a charged particle moves in a circle, when it moves in an orbit around another atom, it should radiate. And so uh, the electron moving around should spiral in, lose energy, and uh, eventually uh, 
due to the attractive force of the nucleus, find a happy home right on top, <coughs> as close as it can get. It's very attracted to the nucleus. Uh, Bohr said, no, no, no. Uh, electrons go into stationary states because I said so. <laughs> Only certain orbits are allowed, and therefore, uh, the only radiation occurs when you go from one orbit to another. It occurs in discrete amounts. This is responsible for the fact that there are spectral lines in hydrogen as opposed to continuous radiation. Uh, people were outraged by this, or puzzle, puzzled, I guess is the right. But uh, Bohr gave rules for what orbits are allowed and for the energy changes in these transitions, which agreed with experiment, which agreed, did predict quantitatively, at least roughly, what those spectral lines were. So uh, like it or not, well, first of all, like it or not, hydrogen atoms are stable. Atoms don't collapse to the center. And uh, like it or not, Bohr's, Bohr's uh, picture, Bohr's uh, model worked, although you couldn't think too hard about it. <coughs> Nowadays, we have wave functions. So where is the discreteness? Well, this is the modern hydrogen atom. And the point is that the waves can form certain stable patterns of oscillations. These are called standing waves. This is very much like in a musical instrument. If you play the musical instrument, uh, it can have certain tones, which are vibrations in discrete patterns. And uh, if you try to make intermediate tones, well, I guess if you try hard enough, you can get squeaks and squawks. Or, but in a, in a wind instrument that supports only uh, certain patterns of vibration, or an organ, uh, there are only certain patterns of vibration, these standing wave patterns. And it's similarly, in fact, the mathematics is very similar for uh, the wave patterns in hydrogen atoms. So that's the way that discreteness emerges in quantum mechanics as discrete uh, kinds of wave patterns, standing waves or musical notes or tones in the atomic world. That means if a hydrogen atom or generally any quantum mechanical object is in its lowest state of energy, if the, the wave pattern is the one that has the, the smallest amount of energy, it can't radiate in any way consistent with uh, conservation of energy. Not only that, but if you disturb it, if you tweak it by an amount that doesn't give it sufficient energy to get to the next discrete level, uh, it doesn't change at all. The wave pattern can change by a little bit, so it doesn't change at all. If you think about it, that's now gotten away from any kind of probability, now we have absolutely unique behavior. 
that's how, and that's what I call the quantum sensor. If there's a gap in energy between uh, the lowest energy state, the one pattern, and all others, then uh, the object involved, the hydrogen atom at low energies, or any other object, a nucleus, that's described by quantum mechanics, uh, will look like a unique object. That's why chemical elements in different places at different times all behave the same, all atoms have the same properties. It's also why chemists don't worry about quarks and gluons, even though the substances that they deal with are made out of quarks and gluons. Uh, the point is that the quarks and gluons organize themselves into a wave pattern that's very stable, and to disturb it at all, you have to supply a lot of energy. Chemists never supply enough energy, and so uh, they might as well not worry, you might as well not have that structure because it's, it's always latent. The substructure can't be excited. Uh, that's also why those of us who work on high energy physics uh, sometimes have to worry about, uh, sometimes have to think about uh, whether we're doing anything practical at all because we're, worry, we're worried about latent structure that's very, very hard to uh, bring out. To bring it out, you have to do things like build the Large Hadron Collider. Otherwise, the quantum sensor says uh, if you don't, can't change things by a lot, you can't change them at all. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I hope I've convinced you or illustrated five profound, fundamental aspects of the scientific worldview and uh, told you some interesting facts along the way. And tomorrow we'll go further. Thank you. <clears throat>
the world. Yes, it's a striking fact about uh, our present understanding that uh, the laws, well, that time is, the, direct, the flow of time is very hard to change. <laughs> uh, people spec have, it's very easy to, in your mind to think about uh, time machines or uh, time travel or reversing time, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, but so far in the laws of physics, the possibilities for that are very, very restricted. There is some of that, there is some dynamics in time. Uh, in strong gravitational field, for instance, the uh, rate of flow of time slows down, that's the gravitational redshift. But the fields involved are literally astronomical and uh, there's very little prospect for practical technologies. Earlier you mentioned a quote from Hertz and he talked about math and how we might find something in there a lot more than necessarily what we put into it. And then later on you, you talked about the, the equations by Bohr, uh, Dirac and Schroeder. Yes. So we had those three equations available to us. Yes. And it was a matter of, of choosing, you know, which one we wanted. So I guess my question is, you know, in how much are we being drawn towards some objective truth that's captured in mathematics as opposed to creating the truth by choosing which one we, we want to utilize? Okay, so yeah, let me speak let me, to that. Okay, let me try to repeat and interpret the question. Uh, as I mentioned, there were, we've had historically three important equations or mo and, and models that go with them uh, for the hydrogen atom. We had Bohr's original model, uh, then we had Schrodinger's equation and the model built on that, and then Dirac's equation and the model built on that. And if I were being more exact, I would say that even nowadays, uh, we, we also use corrected versions of Dirac's equations that involve Feynman diagrams and quantum field theory and so forth. So uh, the question, your question is, uh, well, how can you have all these equations? <laughs> or uh, isn't it a matter of choice which one you use? And uh, the point is that and I think this goes back to this fundamental uh, issue of what the scientific revolution is, the scientific revolution, is that we uh, demand or we strive for absolute consistency and absolute accuracy. So uh, Bohr's model was inconsistent with the basic laws of electrodynamics. As as then known and for that matter as presently known. Uh, so he uh, just ignored all that in a stroke of genius said, uh, never mind, uh, let's, let's truthify ideas about applying uh, the rules of quantum theory to hydrogen atom to get something we can test and something definite that we could make progress with. Uh, then Schrodinger uh, 
wanted to get an equation that he could, that uh, was easy to solve. So he made an approximation that simplified things. Uh, Dirac, and, and was good in, was, was, that was, he checked it against the experiments and it was pretty good. Uh, Dirac was driven by the theoretical, but, but Schrodinger's equation was not consistent either. It was not as inconsistent, but was not inconsistent, not consistent with uh, the special theory of relativity, which uh, Dirac insisted on getting that into the picture. He came up with a more complicated equation. And if we really want to be consistent and uh, go, we have to include uh, the fact that uh, electrons interact with these fluctuations in empty space that I pictured, and that changes their properties. So even Dirac's equations need corrections. So all of those, all of those levels of description uh, are available. The reductionist program, it's a very good illustration actually. Uh, the reductionist program says you keep going, keep going, keep going, get more accurate in terms of more basic things. And uh, as you do that, you get more complicated equations, things that are more difficult to solve, but are more accurate. Now, uh, the old equations retain their value as uh, things that are easy to work with. So you can work at that level of description, but it's not ultimately consistent, and so uh, it's important also to have the next lower tier available, if, or, or we're not satisfied unless we can also move down the ladder as well as up. However, if we want to uh, do chemistry, we might be very happy to work with the equations that are pretty good, pretty accurate, with Schrodinger's equation, uh, because it's much easier to use in complicated situations. If we tried to use Dirac's equations, we wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, a simpler example of this is, or maybe a more familiar one, is um, the general theory of relativity today is the most accurate consistent, uh, gorgeous theory of gravity we have. That's Einstein's theory. But if we want to design space missions, or if we want to calculate the motions of planets or comets, uh, we still use Newton's equations, which are not consistent with special relativity, are known not to be completely accurate, but are much easier to use. Yeah. Can you explain why spooky action at a distance or entanglement does not violate locality? Yeah, well, we could have a long private discussion, but the, the essence of the matter is, okay, the spooky action at a distance has to do with the fact that if you produce two particles, if you can have two particles that are far away from each other, photons or electrons or something, that if they're uh, correlated in the right way, if they're in certain quantum mechanical states, uh, what you do to one over here uh, affects in a subtle way the measurements that you could make on, particle, on the other particle over here. Uh, 
Now, there's another kind of experiment you could do, which is uh, you can take, suppose you uh, uh, had a drawer full of socks of different colors, but uh, someone, or I'm sorry, even better, suppose you had a, a box that contained a pair of shoes, okay. and uh, somebody, without showing you, uh, sneaks off with one, one of the shoes, goes far, far, far away, and then uh, measures whether he's got a left shoe or a right shoe. From that measurement, he affects whether the, the shoe that you have in your box is a right shoe or a left shoe, because it's got to be the opposite one. Now, it's not, it's not quite that straightforward, but whenever you produce these entangled pairs that uh, are in quantum mechanics, there was an original event where they were at the same place at the same time, and then they were transported apart. So the correlations were set in the distant past by local interactions, which were then, uh, at leisure, stretched out. But the interaction itself, which set up the situation, uh, just like setting up the pair of shoes, was uh, a local interaction. <coughs> I think I have the microphone over here. Uh, sometimes when I hear physicists speak about particles, I experience them to be speaking about things between that which I experience to be solid. And so I'm wondering, you showed an animation yes. of the stuff that everything is made of. Where is uh, humans and where is the natural world and all that I experience to be physical in that animation? Well, that's you. That was, that's you, your insides. <laughs> no, no, I, well, I, I, that's a little too glib. Okay, what I showed you in that animation is uh, fluctuations in the so-called gluon field. Uh, that are going on all the time in space and everywhere. On, they're very, very fast, much too fast for us to perceive. Uh, but they're in our equations that have many successful consequences, so we're very sure that, uh, that that's actually happening. <clears throat> now, uh, what protons are, and uh, the things that make ordinary matter, are uh, small disturbances in these patterns that are, have a, a kind of stability. So there are these patterns, and then if you plunk down things like, that are called quarks, they make a disturbance in these fields. And uh, if you saw an animation of what those fluctuations looked like in the presence of quarks, you wouldn't be able to tell by eyeball that it was different, but there are small differences, and that difference is a stable pattern that uh, holds the quarks together to make the lowest kind of standing wave that's stable, you know, as, as using the quantum sensor ideas that I talked about, 
That's what we call a proton. And it's the quantum sensor that I think, the, the, well, the, the quantum sensor is the answer to your question. It's uh, when you have these fluctuating patterns that have a uniqueness to them, if you think about it, a, a pattern that's fluctuating but unique that doesn't change when you respond is, is a unit, is a unique kind of stable unit. So that's what we mean by a particle. It's uh, a unique disturbance that uh, has a kind of integrity to it. You can't change it by a little bit. If you try to change it, give it a little nudge, it holds together as a stable particle. That's what we mean by a particle, a stable pattern. Uh, so, so, so particles are really patterns, I guess is the way to say it. So then is all this solidity fluctuating patterns? Yes. Okay. Well, they're, they're, they're patterns that fluctuate in unique ways. Okay. That's the, the uniqueness comes as a, as a sort, of, sort of dynamic uniqueness. Uh, uh, Mike. Well, go, yeah, one and then the other. Uh, sorry. Can I go? Uh, okay, I'm sorry. This is a this is a layman oh. question. I'm sorry. This is uh, I'm, I, for, that's what we'd hear for. I, I apologize for the level of generality of this question. My work is in aesthetics. Uh, I think my question is very simple. Would you, having said what you what you said, would you now say that? the scientific worldview that you have presented to us is basically a realistic one in the sense that scientists believe that there is something that you could call the language that nature speaks to us and that human beings do not uh, metaphorize, do not create descriptions in the, uh, by using metaphors, but decode the but simply try to translate that language that well, pre-exists pre our descriptions. That my question comes from what I detected as a slight tension in your presentation earlier. You excluded metaphors from the proper, you, you excluded metaphors from the proper scientific description earlier on when you talked about the basic um, uh, scientific revolution. Whereas a lot of the stuff that you've been telling us about seems <laughs> as if it was, no, no. Right. you know, bringing things together that have not been brought together before, which is the Aristotelian definition of the metaphor. So back to my basic question, is the world, uh, is the scientific worldview today basically realistic? Is there a language of nature that we do decode independent of our descriptions, waiting for us to read it correctly or, or not? Or do we create things? Well, that's something we discover as we go along. It didn't have to be this way, but what appears to be the case is that, by gosh, we've gotten a very, very accurate description of nature that has this mathematical character that's very definite, that's more naturally expressed in the language of mathematics uh, than in you know, the language of uh, agents or morals or anything like that. It's, it's, uh, now, I didn't mean to rule out metaphors. We 
we use metaphors all the time. We need them to think in, in, as a tool to think about things. Uh, but the scientific revolution, I think, was it's really a, a revolution in ambition that, that we ask our metaphors to really hold up. <laughs> we really try to push them and test them and, make, and sharpen them especially so that, uh, so that they're not, well, vagueness is the big enemy. Right? We try to make things as precise as possible. I'd like to I'd like to pose a challenge to your claim about locality and, and ask huh? you to respond. If you have one set of laws that seem to describe the quantum world and another set of laws that seem to describe you know, what you might call the Einstein world, the very large, very fast world, and no one's been able to unify them so far yet. Oh, no, we do. <laughs> and no one's been able to unify them so far I yet. The Is it possible that there are two realities? <laughs> that there are two realities, and no, no, therefore it's, it's, that your locality I just, is, I point is wrong? I refuse to accept the premise. No, absolutely not. We do. I mean, Dirac's great achievement was, in fact, to unify the, the Einstein special theory of relativity with quantum mechanics in a consistent equation. What we did for the theory of quarks and gluons is, is to make a consistent, what's called a quantum field theory, that's consistent with both quantum mechanics and rigorously consistent with special relativity, even beyond the level that Dirac asked for. Dirac didn't really take into account the fluctuations. And so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I absolutely deny the premise that we don't unify the... Uh, the relativistic world and, and the quantum world. It's very difficult, very difficult. And in fact, maybe, maybe that's the positive way of saying it. It's really, really difficult to make those things consistent. Yes, they are based on a priori, extremely different concepts. Uh, in relativity, mm -hmm. space and time are kind of interchangeable. That's too strong, but they, they mix with each other. Uh, under, uh, but in quantum mechanics, uh, we really need time to have a special status. So time looks very different in setting up quantum mechanics and in setting up relativity. But when, when the way we do it is set up the quantum mechanics as if there's a time, as if there's one time, and then prove at the end of some very complicated hair-raising manipulations that actually we didn't need that. We could have used a different time, definition of time that mixed it up with space. Uh, so Dirac did that for the electrons. Uh, people like Feynman and Dyson and uh, Schwinger did it for electrodynamics, and Gross and I did it for quantum chromodynamics. That's really been, that's what drives locality, that's what drives, uh, that's what's driven us to our modern, extremely successful, uh, extremely economical basic laws of physics is precisely reconciling relativity, which leads 
to locality uh, with the principles of quantum theory. Mm. Now, yes. It's a good thing that's not easy, actually. It's a good thing that's not easy, because if it was easy, uh, it wouldn't tell us very much you know, which way to go. But the fact that it's so difficult has kind of led us into a very specific way that turns out to be right. <laughs> um, time is marching on, Good. so we should take <laughs> one last question. So it, it was quite some years ago, and it may have been in this same room, that uh, uh, Professor Wigner, in the course of a symposium, yeah. uh, was talking about your point number three, uh, the application of the, of the mathematics, yes. and referred to it in, in a rather profound fashion as unreasonable. Yes. I, I wonder how you view that. I've written about that, actually. Uh, I don't think we should be satisfied with things being unreasonable. If, if things seem to be unreasonable, that means we haven't understood the reasons. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think, well, this is going to sound circular, but sometimes circles can be helices where you get to higher and higher levels. When we investigate the laws of physics, the basic laws of nature, we find that they have this character of locality and other properties of symmetry, uh, and also this universality, that this, they're the same in different places and different times. That explains why they're amenable to mathematical treatment. If they weren't local, if they weren't the same in different places and times, they wouldn't be accessible to mathematical treatment. Now, you could say, well, we learned that by doing mathematics, but uh, it didn't have to be that way. So it's really the specific properties of the law, laws, that lead to the success of mathematics. If you wanted to apply mathematics to understanding, say, uh, the physics of Super Mario, with all its different levels and arbitrariness, you wouldn't get very far. You wouldn't find unreasonable success. Okay. You would wind up reproducing the complicated programs that underlie Super Mario or something. In fact, it is unreasonably effective. Yeah, the but, mathematics. But, but there's a reason for it. <laughs> so, so it's unreasonably successful for a very good reason. <laughs> Thank you for a great talk. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Let me just remind everyone that the story continues here, same room, 4.30 tomorrow.